action. Welcome to Torn Stumps, the Trash Movie Podcast with me, Robert Gershenson, photographer and head of podcast at Trash, which can be found at movetotrash.co.uk and Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. Gattaca is a 1997 sci-fi movie directed by Andrew Nichol. In the not-too-distant future where society is divided into those who are genetically superior, called valids, and their lesser counterparts, invalids, Vincent, played by Ethan Hawke, is an invalid, but he has dreams above his station, and he has conned his way into working at a space flight organization with the goal of one day being selected for a mission to Saturn's moon Titan. When a murder happens, will the investigation expose him as an imposter? Joshua, had you seen this before? Yes, I had. I saw it a couple of years ago, and I loved it. It kind of turned me into an Andrew Nichol fan because I I think I knew that he had written um, Truman Show mm-hmm. and um, that was pretty much it. And I just, I was, I think I was surprised at how, how um, modest and yet intelligent it was it, and is. You know, it, it's kind of this sci-fi that has really, really interesting philosophical ideas and questions at its heart um, about humanity and the future um but it doesn't get um too big for its boots it never it never feels like it's kind of it's not an action sci-fi it's a thinking man sci-fi in a kind of a twilight zone kind of style you're nodding are you agreeing with me a hundred percent i've never seen it before i'd heard of it and i knew that uma thurman was in it and ethan Hawke. And I'm assuming it's the film they met on because they were married for a couple of years, weren't they? Yeah, they got married after working together on this. And I fucking loved it. I I'm so pleased. I fucking loved this. What did you love, Rob? I like that it is intelligent. It's cerebral. It's very low-key and it felt like an independent drama because it's just set in a handful of locations. It doesn't try to be the big I am. It's It's... Like you said, it's very modest. It's very humble. It's not at all arrogant. It's just very small and contained. And it has a very clear, pinpoint, sharply focused story. And it just plays it really well. Yeah, it's a great example of a writer writing to a um, to a budget, I, I suppose. Or kind of like rising to the challenge of having limitations placed upon them. Mm. Because Andrew Nichol, he actually wrote um, The Truman Show... And he wanted to direct that himself. But um, when it became clear it'd be like a higher budget film, then Jim Carrey came on board, which made it into a, like a 60 million, 80 million dollar yeah, Peter Weir film. film, didn't it? Yeah, so then Peter Weir took on directing. Yes. Um, and so when he was writing Gattaca, he knew that if he wanted to make a directorial debut, there was no way that anyone was going to give him money um, of the scale that um, Truman Show got. So he wrote a film script that was very specifically like a $20 million script, which still sounds like a hell of a lot of money. <laughs> but as you know, in Hollywood, that does not go far. No, that's not a lot. Especially, well, it's not a lot of money at all in, compared I mean, to what they usually spend on. Yeah, I mean, most of that will go on acting. So, yeah. I mean, so you're not going to get much for your money. And, you know, around this time, this is 1997, so um, Star Wars Episode One was already 
in production and that was like a 150 million dollar movie so that was the that was considered the big bucks then yeah now it's up to like 200 million 250 oh God. million yeah yeah exactly so so yeah he very cleverly creates a a future world but he doesn't make it so flashy and so over the top that he has nowhere to shoot it or he has to build extravagant sets he basically just kind of used futury like he used kind of 1950s brutalist architecture to because that is weirdly futuristic like when you go down to the south bank and you look at the national theater and things like that it looks futuristic even though it's really fucking old now yeah really clever way of doing things because there was nothing there was nothing out of the ordinary in the way that it looked it's the way they were using things that was the sci-fi ish aspect you know you had these machines where you could just sort of funnel some liquid blood or some piss and it would read out yes no valid invalid Mm -hmm. norm but it's not the machine that looks futuristic it's how they were using it yeah that's true and there's not that much i don't think there was any special effects apart from the rocket taking off in the distance yeah no one's flying around there's no minority port you know waving their hands for a digital readout the laptops look like laptops you can go to dixon's and buy now (laughs) it's weirdly like even though the film is now over 20 years old it actually hasn't really dated that much no it's so fresh because the technology is it seemed kind of slightly um outlandish in the 90s but now we have um, fingerprint recognition technology yeah. I mean, it on doesn't our phone. prick our finger and take blood, but it doesn't. That's, do... that's what it was doing. Was it was it? it was doing a, a, like a small um, blood test. Oh, of course, yeah, because yeah, he was yeah, filling. Yeah, he like, when he was laying the fingerprint over his own, he'd actually filled it with Jude Law's blood beforehand. Oh, I did wonder what that was. That so makes so every much day, I mean, how scabby would your fingers oh, be know. every day getting a, a fingerprint? It's like yeah. going for an HIV test every day where they, 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 you know, they prick your finger, they pour the, they push, squeeze the blood yeah. into that little thing, uh-huh. that dish. Yeah, yeah. Like every day. Gross. When you go into work, every day when you come out of work. I mean, he, the, the dedication that um, Vincent has to keeping up this charade is you're surprised that he hasn't just completely unraveled he's yeah it's it's almost like you you learn more about his character through the fact that he is keeping up this appearance than you do from anything else you you kind of you see how dedicated he is to this you know he's in that in that kind of chamber scrubbing off any excess skin that he can every day and and um, chopping his hair down yeah just because he doesn't want to leave any dna he doesn't right. want to leave a trace that could you know i mean they eventually do pick up an eyelash that's insane yeah i know they, they, pick... they, they notice that there's an eyelash <laughs> <laughs> well i don't think they noticed it it was just a, a case of when they were using those mini hoovers yeah which again kind of look futuristic but they're just mini hoovers yeah and you know we had similar technology back then you know dustbuster just not that <laughs> that small yeah but I don't think the guy thought, oh, I can see an eyelash. It was a case of, oh, my little Hoover's picked something up. Yeah. Let's get that tested. Did you notice that was a nice little thing, actually, that they did, where every time they referenced the FBI, they called them Hoovers? Yeah. Because of Jay Edgar. Yeah. But it was like a nice thing where the, the language had, you know, the slang had come from 
the past. It was yeah. like, that's what happens. And the whole life. gumshoe element was yeah. brilliant. I loved that the police were in trilbies and yeah. rain jackets and the most outdoor scenes that, you know, when, when uh, something, you know, like a tension, a tension filled moment was usually in at nighttime outdoors and usually after rain had happened. Mm, yeah, very noir. Yeah. Yeah, it looked, sometimes it did look like a color version of a noir. Like you had the, they, they, they use green a lot in the film. Yes. Which obviously is envy. So, you know, it's kind of, I want that, I want that, why can't I have it? Yeah. But the way they lit the green, kind of the walls and, and stuff like that, it looked like what a noir would look like if it was in color. It was really cool. I like how they had the, the, the hangdog detective was actually played by Alan Arkin. He's like the underling. Yeah. He's answering to the... To the younger guy. The younger, physically superior, yet maybe not quite mentally superior. But because his genetics... Yeah, because are... perfect genetics. When did you realise that he was his brother? Didn't until the end. Same. Yeah, I didn't I wasn't sure if I, was, if I was, you know, an invalid and <laughs> I just hadn't picked it up. Yeah. Or because he he called his name at one point, but I just didn't question it. Yeah, and there's a moment where he's standing in front of a computer screen and he's flipping between Vincent's fake ID image and the old Vincent image, which is the real one. Yeah, and he's flipping between them, and you're thinking, "Hmm, clever detective, he's figuring this out." And then at the end, you're like, "Ah, he recognizes his brother." You know when he walked away and he tore the his he tore part of the family photo. Was he taking his own photo? Yeah, I think so. He was removing himself from the family, wasn't he? Like, I found it a slight stretch that when they were looking on the computer and they had a picture of Vincent as he was when he worked there previously as a... Cleaner. As a cleaner and being open the fact that he had an invalid status, then he would disappear for a couple of whatever, however long, it was never specified. Then he would come back as Jerome. Yeah. The the identity that he's assumed because he wants to get the space job Mm. that they wouldn't look at the picture of the cleaner that (laughs) they had traced from the eyelash and go that's jerome yeah that's true that that probably would have overcomplicated it maybe because maybe they wouldn't have made the leap that it was jerome they would have gone oh this cleaner clearly is the one who's come back with a grudge but why wouldn't they look at but why wouldn't they look at jerome and go it's the same face but i think you're supposed to think that he looks so different that there's no way it's him. Like there's um, Ethan Hawke. He's like, he's got this weird thing where he's actually, when he's kind of in repose, when he's not, when he's quite expressionless, he's really handsome. And then when he was smiling, he had this r- weird kind of like predatory thing about <laughs> him. But he kind of really played that up so that when he was Vincent, the invalid, he he looked actually really quite different to this suave Jerome persona that he created for himself. But the hilarious thing was that that picture of Jerome didn't look like either Ethan Hawke or Jude Law, who played the real Jerome. (laughs) Yeah. It it doesn't look like either of them. That's ridiculous. Do you think it's because they are so ingrained in that society to believe that valids are genetically superior that they couldn't even fathom that this person who is in front of them, fronting as Jerome, they couldn't even fathom that someone like him could be responsible for the murder that they are investigating Mm. because they're so biased towards these people being the golden guys and girls of society. In fact, it's not even girls, it's guys really. Mm. Um, 
that they just couldn't they couldn't even fathom just so they wouldn't even enter in their head it wouldn't compute yeah it's like um it was like in hidden figures the film about the nasa mathematicians oh yes the the three i think yeah. three black ladies three black ladies and they they kind of end up being the ones who crack the the formula for sending them out into space yes and it's almost like they didn't believe the white guys led by Kevin Costner. He couldn't possibly believe, couldn't even, didn't even enter his head that these mathematicians were so skilled that they could actually do this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of similar to that, I think. And it's like the, these amazing advances in technology and this idea of um, genetic advancement has actually hindered them in terms of like their own intelligence <laughs> so they can't see what's right in front of them because they rely so much on technology it's a bit like us yes. like i won't believe that i know how to get home unless i check city mapper <laughs> which so, takes a reading of your blood it takes a long time i didn't think it was that they had evolved i just thought that they got so shit hot at identifying at birth your defects and your date of death that they started favoring those who had little to no defects and also those who were going to have a long life. I didn't think that those valids were any more advanced, you know, on the evolutionary scale than the guys and girls who have defects. It was just a case that society decided, well, we only want to put our trust and our money and our efforts into the healthy ones and we'll just use the other ones as kind of slave labor yeah get them to yeah. clean and shit so i didn't think it was an evolution thing well it was a, an evolution in terms of technology i think right but they could pick out what they what they viewed as superior genetics yes. which is like a lottery you know it's got nothing to do with anything really but then they but then they gave families the ability to alter the genetics so that's mm. what they did with the second son with anton yeah yeah it's interesting because this is a real thing like it is when, now yes no but when this film was written in sort of 95 96 10 years before that that's when the first tests of uh chorionic villus sampling were done which is kind of a, it's a form of prenatal diagnosis which, oh i see right i thought you meant yeah. like genetically altering your kids no no no, no. Right. the actual ability to test in utero fetuses to to discover if they have conditions like down syndrome cystic fibrosis sickle cell disease things like that that is that only that recent that was 1984 that the first one was done but now it's commonplace to have these tests yeah i mean everyone Um, will have it yeah and and it kind of seems like common sense but if if nothing else to prepare you for what you may have to or if um, you want to abort if you want to abort or if you you know what how you would prepare for a child that would had certain disabilities um so yeah, it's interesting how this film very much, it feels kind of current and it's asking really interesting questions, but in a, a, through a sci-fi lens. Well, that's, that is what sci-fi is. Sci-fi yeah. seems to have been stolen by films like The Meg yeah. or... Well, like Terminator. No, no, I think Terminator is... Or like is stupid films. Just films that don't necessarily make you think don't have I like transformers because and... the best sci-fi yeah so the best sci-fi will take a mirror and put it up to society so society can look at itself black mirror 
is a sci-fi. The Twilight Zone is sci-fi. Mm. Watchmen is sci-fi. It'll take real life things, twist them, and create a story, usually set in an alternative version of our world, that reflects the signs of the times back at us. Yeah. So this is a pure pure sci-fi yeah it's the kind of sci-fi that really doesn't get made enough these days and that's why people like christopher nolan are so um well respected and so huge because i think people do want to see these stories and like things like the 70s like planet of the apes that's sorry that was 60s but the you know logan's run Hmm. um these amazing films that are fantastical and like visually amazing and stuff but they actually what they really want to do is ask a what if question about humanity and people 2001 a space odyssey 2001 a space odyssey the scene where he leaves just after beating his brother at swimming why did he leave is it because he realizes that he's not necessarily as weak and doomed as he thinks he is he he he's done something impossible which is he beats his brother at this swimming competition that they have where they swim out as far as they can until one of them gets too tired or scared that they have to swim back. Mm. And he suddenly, for the first time, actually outswims his brother, which is, according to genetics, impossible. Yeah. He suddenly realizes that, oh, I'm not necessarily predestined to anything. Just because I have, maybe I'm not as strong, it doesn't mean I can't work harder. And I can actually be as good as him. It's such a great idea that you're told one thing, but you believe another. Yeah. It's a very inspiring movie. I mean, it's like, it's like anybody. Anyone can relate to wanting to be better, but feeling stuck or feeling that they ha- the, the expectation on them is so limited or so damning. You know, the, the, the whole idea of modern society is based on the idea that um, you the social classes can move, you know, and obviously that's not something that is historically something that's been um, encouraged, (laughs) but um, this film really kind of hits at that quite well. And it made me think of, have you heard of imposter syndrome? Uh, Yeah. Where you just feel like, you know, any time, I think all creatives have it where at all, at any time you feel there's going to be a knock on the door and it's the talent police. They're going to say, you're not talented. It's like, haha, we've discovered you. Yeah, give me yeah. that camera. You don't deserve it. I get it all the time. But yeah, oh yeah, me too. It could be really crippling. It's awful. But the great thing about this film is it does, he literally is an imposter. <laughs> he's, he's working at this desk, as I do. Um, and he is literally imposter. And he, um, I just love that idea that he's, you're with him. You're like, yeah, you've got, you are an imposter. You have imposter syndrome because you are an imposter. But you should succeed and you can succeed. Did you think he was the murderer? Um, no, because I never distrusted his um, his kind of perspective or his narrative. I didn't believe that he was seeking to conceal anything from the audience. I think that we were with him from the start. And yeah, I didn't think it was him for sure. Why did you? I wasn't overly sure because Mm. at one point he made reference to the fact that the guy wasn't going to be a problem anymore yeah but he didn't necessarily confirm that he wasn't the killer he doesn't admit it but it's very ambiguous Mm. he said it to jude law 
Yeah, I thought Jude Law, it, it played a very clever game because there's a scene where you see Jude Law outside smoking and you're like, what are you doing out there? And it's outside the, the building though, isn't it? It's outside the flat. Oh, it's like looking through the window at uh, Uma Thurman. Is that, that, what, is that what you mean? Looking down on Uma in the car? No, no, no. There's a scene where right. he's alone and he's alone. Oh, and then Hank from yeah. Breaking Bad comes yeah. over. <laughs> What's your number? What's yeah. your number? Um, yeah, I thought maybe it was him because there's this suggestion that he is hiding something. And actually, it's really heartbreaking because he's not hiding anything. It's really sad. But why did he want to give up his identity? Yeah, I never really understood that bit. Was it, was it for the money? Like there was, there was a line that said, I kept him in the comfort of what he was, what he was used to yeah. by paying him, essentially. It's never really clear. Is it loneliness? Like, does he want that friendship? It's never really clear. Does he just want his name to continue? He, yeah, you know, maybe. he was a a Olympic swimmer or something, and he only mm. came second, and that was enough for him to try and kill himself, mm. which has landed him in a wheelchair. So he's never going to, he's never going to meet the expectations of that's been put on him by society because he has great genetics. He is a valid. Yeah. There's, his, there's he the, can't do it, but his name could continue on. Yeah. There is a really nice kind of tragic poetry to the fact that obviously invalid is, it's how it looks similar to the word invalid, which yeah. is a word that people used to use to describe disabled people, people. with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And he is deemed valid, but he is in fact an invalid. Yes. Um, there's a nice, it's an unspoken poetry to that. I think he's a great character. And Jude Law is so good in this. Yeah, he's only like 23, 24 here. Yeah, he's one of those actors who I really feel that they just have never maybe been given the chance or that they just haven't really kind of had the career that they should have. Because talented Mr. Ripley, he's equally amazing in. Um, but is he, is he just a really good supporting character actor yeah, maybe. who just happens to have lead actor looks yeah that's probably what it is actually you know i find with some actors they're kind of pushed into this lead actor arena but they're not fully comfortable in that yeah. they're stronger as supporting characters supporting actors christopher walken is a prime example of that mm. yeah he's great everything he does he's not someone looking for the spotlight is he no. he's his pure support in the best way that word can ever be used. And you know, I think he's only been the lead in two films. Yeah. King of New York and The Dead Zone. Oh yeah, of course. Everything else he excels at. Like the one that always I always think of Christopher Walken is True Romance. Yeah. Where he comes in, does his day and a half and leaves. Yeah. It's really sad though, isn't it? Because you see these actors like Taylor Kitsch and Charlie Hunnam, who are kind of all pushed into leading man roles. And, and it's then, not working. And it flops. Who's Taylor Kitsch? Well, exactly. <laughs> he, was, he was John Carter. From but, Mars? Yeah. But as a support player, he's great. Like in Friday Night Lights, he was really great. And in Savages, he's really great. Um, Just but, as lead actors. But as a lead, couldn't carry the film. Just didn't have that magic that someone like Ethan Hawke does have. Yeah. To me, a lead actor usually has to be someone who tends to play a version of themselves. Mm. George Clooney. 
Tom Cruise. Mm. Those are lead actors. It's the charisma, yeah. uniqueness, nerve and nerve talent. And talent. <laughs> Don't fuck it up. <laughs> yeah. I loved that Ethan Hawke in this film wasn't playing Ethan Hawke. He was playing a character. Well, this was kind of like his transition into grown-up roles. Where did he come from? Where did he come from? Where did he go? Back at, <laughs> back at Cotton Eye Joe again. Cotton Eye Joe O'Clock. No, he did The Explorers as a kid in 1985. Okay. Then he did Dead Poet Society in 89, obviously. Was he in that? I've never seen that. Oh, it's really good. I've never seen it. I know it's standing on tables a lot. Yeah, you're, if you watch it now, especially, you'll cry your eyes out because obviously Robin Williams is just... He's dead. Phenomenal. Oh, I see. And right. also dead. Yes. Um... This was actually two years after Ethan Hawke did Before Sunrise, which was his big kind of indie coming out. You know, like okay. Before Sunrise, Before Midnight? Never seen it. It's a trilogy of films um, where it's him and I want to say Julie Delpy and they basically play a kind of a couple. It's very talky. I've never seen it. This is the thing. I really, really want to watch this trilogy. Maybe we should. Um, what but was it, it? Before Midnight, Before Sunrise? No, it's Before Sunrise. lunchtime. Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight. And then he did Gattaca. And this right. was kind of, this feels like his, his big kind of big grown-up role. Like he's in a sci-fi film. I mean, it flopped, which, you know, which is really sad. But only financially. Only financially. Absolutely. Because yeah. it is great. But he's, I think he's often best when he's with Richard Linklater, who just knows what to do with him, essentially. Um, have you seen First Reformed? No, not yet. Okay, it's I Paul really Schrader's new one. Yeah, I really yeah. want to see that. But I feel the presence of Ethan Hawke grounds it as an indie film. Mm. I think that's where a lot of that indiness comes from. No, the you're fact right. that you've got a lead actor who's not a lead actor; he's a lead character. Yeah, because if it was Tom Cruise or you know who else was big in the nineties, if it was if it was like a a big blockbuster actor, yeah. The film just wouldn't it work. Nic- it was Nicolas Cage. It would be Nicolas Cage. Yeah. And all these other characters. Yeah. But he is just kind of a cog in the wheel, isn't he? And it's... Yeah, you're right. It grounds it and it makes it feel in some way more plausible. He just has this amazing sort of steely determination. Yeah. And he's very good at... You get this... You, you completely buy that he's a character playing another character. Mm, yeah. He's got this incredible poker face and it doesn't drop until anton says you're vincent i'm your brother mm. and then it's he becomes this almost wild character and he says fine i can beat you let's go swim outside you and me yeah so they go By swim the but it, he, he almost becomes a completely different person so if yeah. you did a split screen thing if you you know took the dvd and you you rip the dvd and you, you cut it yourself you would play those two roles with the sound off, you would see two completely different body languages. Yeah, he's suddenly being threatened because he's got this ambition. He is so close to fulfilling this dream that he has. He's literally shooting for a moon. The stars. But it's not just that he's threatened. He's been discovered. He doesn't have to put... The character of Vincent doesn't have to put the character of Jerome on. Mm. He can be Vincent again. And Vincent is very insecure. Yeah. He's got ideas above the station that society has deemed for him. So he becomes this whole other character. He becomes the real Vincent as opposed yeah. to Jerome. Jerome's the mask. The Gattaca building was like a character to itself. I always felt like wherever you were in that building, 
either someone was looking down on you or mm. there was glass. No one was unobserved. You were constantly being observed either by the location you are to someone else in the building or you're being analyzed because of all the technology there. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not a comfortable place to be. Yeah. And it can give you, the character and the audience, a sense of complete paranoia. Yeah. But there wasn't a single CCTV camera. No, I thought that as well. It's a bit weird, isn't it? Not necessarily because, you know, we're very CCTV heavy now. I don't mm. think... It's a, a pre-9-11 environment, 1997. Yeah. I don't remember there being all that much CCTV. Just having... in like Woolworths looking at the pick and mix. <laughs> well, I was fat as a kid. <laughs> but just the idea that, you know, we weren't living in such paranoid times that everyone had to be observed. Mm. It was very forward thinking in that respect, this movie. Yeah. Did you mind that the film starts... You kind of meet him, you go to work with him, you see his life, and then he suddenly goes back and fills in his backstory. Did you mind that it did that jump? I didn't mind that so much, no. But I was just questioning who was he narrating to, because... Oh, yeah. Was it a case that they did a Blade Runner where they realised stuff needed to be explained? So was that narration added in afterwards like it was in Blade Runner? Mm. Or was that always part of the storytelling? I don't know. I th- I feel like it was always part of it. It but doesn't necessarily jar, does it? I was fine no. with it. I just always... I want to know who they're narrating to. Yeah. Well, I think that when I read books that are in the first person and then suddenly they have to think of a reason to tell you who they're telling the story to and I don't think you really need it sometimes. They don't always explain, do they? Like... American Psycho is written in first person. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but we talked about that, didn't we? We did talk about that. <laughs> but, you know, many books are, are written in, in that yeah, way. We just yeah. accept it in books. But in film, I think it is slightly different. Mm, yeah. It doesn't always... It's not always super-duper clear. Yeah. I mean, in the case of Clockwork Orange, that's a narration that's in first person, but that's a device that Kubrick has used to draw you in because the book is written like that. Mm. It draws you in and it sort of makes you an accomplice with Alex and his crimes because he keeps, you know, he calls you, you know, my dear <laughs> listener, my dear reader, my dear friend. Right. He's drawing you in. He's <laughs> making you an accomplice. Yeah. But in this, it just feels a bit we need to fill in the information so that's have a narration. I think, I've, I think I noticed it more the second time around. The first time I was just kind of like, yeah, who is this guy? And the second time I was like, well, it's slightly jarring when he's like, I was born in 19 blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, okay, we're going to get your story oh, now. Here comes your life story. Yeah, here we go, off we go. Yeah. What do you think of Uma Thurman in the film? I really like her in this. I really like her. She has that real, she's got kind of like a Hitchcock fragility, that kind of inscrutable blonde character who um or an inscrutable blonde woman who's obviously very hitchcock and you but she's actually better than a hitchcock character because she feels like a human being yeah she has flaws she's not just blonde with tits and she doesn't just exist to serve the male character or the story she's Mm -hmm. she's there as a fully formed human being with her own kind of flaws and and her own thoughts and her own mind and i think that she acts as a very interesting mirror to Vincent. Um, and it's just nice. It's just like, it's such a well-handled 
romance. It doesn't feel like a romance. No, it doesn't feel like a romance. And that's such that's such a compliment because it's a, they do have a love story together and they sleep together and they go on a date and stuff. And but it doesn't feel like oh, here's the love story and it, there's a tension to that and there's a paranoia to the relationship that echoes the rest of the story because he you know when he lets go and stays over the night he then wakes up and is immediately terrified that he's left his hair and you know his cell all over her bed which he will have um and he runs outside to scrub himself in the sand yeah and it's sexy and disturbing (laughs) (laughs) which is the name of your autobiography coming out next year I yeah. felt that she she has such an amazing face. It's a really yeah. like 1950s face. She's as an actress, she's really out of her own time. And she was only under 30 when she did this film. Yeah. She hit it big with pulp fiction. She yeah. hadn't yet done Kill Bill. So she's in that period where, you know, she was still happy to be making movies. But she's not the femme fatale. No. Which is brilliant. She's she's not the evil one. She's innocent and she's getting corrupted by him. Yeah. Oh, that's true, actually. But I love that they have the same perceived flaw. The heart the problem. Heart. Yeah. 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 Which is um, where love happens, Joshua. Is it? What's well, love? I what yeah. is love? <laughs> Hi, Hal. <laughs> um, Would you class this as a dystopian future film? Dystopia is the opposite of utopia isn't it utopia is kind of like happy go lucky everyone's having a great life murder death kill what's murder death kill from the demolition man oh yeah yeah is it gonna rain wait any second now (laughs) no yeah dystopia is pretty miserable so yeah i probably count this as dystopia i've always seen dystopian movies as you know very orwellian a case of the government is so controlling that it's very binary you're either part of the government who who are in control or you are pretty much slave citizens working only for the government Hmm. but in this world it's it's very diverse so you've got the valids you've got the invalids but it's not the case that everyone lives in cells or gray or white environments like in thx 1138 (laughs) But, you know, they go to they go to nightclubs here. They yeah. actually have social life. They have lives. They can make decisions for themselves. It's just that what is setting this this society apart from the one that we live in is that genetics plays a massive, massive part. Yeah, it's kind of our world, but kind of slight. The gravity has shifted slightly to the right. It's like, so we are obsessed with technology now. So technology is what defines our dystopia. Yeah. But for them, it's eugenics. And eugenics infiltrates every single part of their existence. But I don't know if I'd call it dystopian. No, maybe you're right. Maybe it isn't dystopia. Maybe it's just kind of a possible future that just no one seems particularly happy, to be honest. But they do have free will in, within their set confines. What did you think about the humour in it? Was there any? (laughs) (laughs) Some of it is really funny. Like what? So there's a great bit um, towards the beginning when he says that he was born in... um, He was conceived on the Riviera or conceived in a Riviera. And he means a Buick Riviera, which is like a 1970 car. Oh, I didn't get that joke. (laughs) And there's that... 
there's that great moment where Uma Thurman's character goes to get his DNA tested at that DNA booth. And there's the woman who's kissed a guy. Oh, yes. And she gets her lips dabbed so that she can get his DNA But I didn't see that as funny. I just thought that that's really clever. That's really sneaky. That's... Yeah. Of course, if they're, you know, they're they're constantly swabbing people, even at traffic lights or or police stops, if they're constantly checking your blood and your saliva, then, yeah, that's a, a total plausible way for a police informant to dob you in Hmm. i didn't see it as funny i saw it as funny i also thought that it was interesting that there was absolutely zero data protection whatsoever in this world so you could get your lips dabbed and then within seconds you've got a guy's full dna profiling full gene sequence a picture of them yeah you know there's no protection whatsoever for them on really cool little clunky devices yeah, and that's the only thing that really dates it like like a little bit. Because like electric cars, we have that now. Yes. Scanning, all that, we have that yes, now. Yes, and the way that they were plugging them in, although they were plugging under, them in yeah. under the bumper, yeah. the actual like chargers on the wall look very similar to Tesla's. Oh, yeah. But the thing that dates it is that when you when you scan something and the image of the valid or the invalid comes up, yes. it kind of flickers like a video, like a VHS. Mm, mm-hmm. It wouldn't do that if it was digital or anything. It would just come up. And he used a tiny CD to record <laughs> Jude Law's heartbeat and then play it back on mm. a player strapped to his chest where the, the that sucker thing would yeah. be, the monitor. Do you think that the it was a happy ending? Yes. 100%. Do you? But the film wasn't really... You know, the main goal for this character was to defy the restrictions put on him by society and go to Saturn, go to Titan. It wasn't, let me assume this identity, let me go to all these lengths to defy society, break the law, commit fraud, potentially put myself in prison. It wasn't that wasn't all just so he could meet someone and fall in love mm. it was so he could go to saturn and spoiler spoiler he got there well so yes he left, a, the, he left he left Earth. the planet but the <laughs> idea is that he is going where he, he with, wants with to all be. the circus lights flying around the inside of the spaceship looks good though <laughs> it looks good um but yeah he he succeeded and i don't even believe that they were in love he just found a kindred spirit do you think it would have been a sadder ending if the main character had been Jude Law, if it had been Jerome, the real Jerome, because in some, if you if you if you replayed the film or remade the film purely from his perspective, it would be a freaking tragedy. Oh, it would be. Yeah, I mean, the guy commits suicide. Yeah, he climbs into the incinerator and and burns himself, and he's wearing the silver medal. The he's the runner-up. You know, in the inciting incident of his story. It is the fact that he didn't win that race, that mm. swimming race. And, you know, the the cause of all his misery, he wears around his neck while he dies. Mm. Oh, that's another link with with um, Vincent, is that they were both swimmers. And Vincent refused to um, buy into this, this limitation. Yes. And swimming was like his freedom. And Jerome's swimming was his downfall even though he's a valid a hundred percent yes so it goes deeper this film i know there's so many layers rob so so many layers many layers (laughs) (laughs) 
can I give you like a little quick lesson in, um, is it biology? Uh, if you want. Yeah, it's DNA stuff. Yes, so, G-A-T-C yes. or yeah. something. G-A-T and C are for the four nucleobases of DNA. What are they? I do not know what that means. <laughs> uh, they are guanine. Well, they'll be the four things that make up your DNA. Right. So they will look for, you know, those. I imagine it's like combination therapies. You have to have those four elements mm. in order that will denote who you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guanine, adenine, thymine, and cy- cytosine. Um, actually, looking at the poster for the film, I think it's the original poster. It's got a great image of the spiral staircase in the flat. Yeah. And it looks like a DNA helix. Oh, oh of course. It's yes, so that makes cool. so much sense. That scene when he's dragging himself up that staircase. My God. <laughs> I was like, like gripping onto the edge of the sofa, just like sweating bullets. It's like me after the gym. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Gattaca, directed by Andrew Nicole. Oh my god! It was produced by Danny DeVito. Oh yeah, Jersey Films. Yeah, yeah. He I he direct, he um produced Pulp Fiction as well. His production company. Oh, Danny DeVito is like the unsung hero of Hollywood, of independent cinema world. in the nineties of the world. Have you- <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I just love that he's such a strange little man, but he's just done so much cool stuff. Yeah, like he was the stripper in Friends. That's exactly what I was gonna say. <laughs> it's so funny. That is like that is that is kind of. Comedy slash tragedy in its purest form is Danny DeVito wanting to be a what well, as a stripper who's too old. Yeah, no one wants him to strip anymore. Well, he needs to assume the identity of, <laughs> of the a penguin. Oh. <laughs> but Jack Cousteau is still dead. I love Jack Cousteau. I'm sorry, Joshua. I think Jack Cousteau is dead. Can we do a podcast about friends? It would just be us quoting friends back to each other. I mean, we, for can, an hour we can try and do. We can try and do an entire podcast episode on every single episode Ooh. it's not happening no do you think you would watch this again very soon i don't think so. i don't know i think i would need a reason to because i really really enjoyed it but i've got a stack of dvds that i need to get through seriously because they've been sitting there for like a year um so i'll probably prioritize those i do really really like this film a lot it's probably up there as one of my favorite sci-fis Wow. Yeah. I really want my boyfriend to watch this. Uh-huh. I think he'll really, really love it. I got him to watch Heartbeats last week. <gasps> oh, Heartbeats. He loved it. If you love Heartbeats, we love you. No, I was, <laughs> was going to say, if you love Heartbeats, go listen to our podcast about Heartbeats. Episode two, I it's think It's really it was. early on, yeah. Heartbeats is a very one early those, one. It's one of those rare ones where we both absolutely loved the film. Like this? To the point where we would actually have a fight about who loved it more. That was me. Yeah. We swam. I won. <laughs> I won because <laughs> I never conserve energy to go back. <laughs> yeah. Let us know your thoughts on Gattaca on Twitter at Torn Stubbs Pod. And don't forget to subscribe to us on the Apple Podcast app so you never miss an episode. And if you want, drop us a five-star rating. Thanks. We're off for a swim. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua Winning. Cut. <laughs>